Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Not every era of history is well documented, and sometimes it's necessary to look harder to find the truth. This is certainly the case with Britain in the aftermath of Roman withdrawal in the 5th century, especially as it relates to King Arthur. With so many versions of this story, which parts are real? How much can we attribute to the historical King Arthur? Let's begin. I'm here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about King Arthur, which I'm very excited to do with you. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of those figures that there's a lot of uh, sort of controversy over. Um, there's a lot of argument over, you know, which parts of his lives are real, which parts of his lives, uh, life is fake. Um, and, you know, I, I figure with that, much, with that much conversation about him, we might as well kind of drill down and figure out what we can actually uh, take back to the historical record um, in terms of his, uh, not only his life, but what he managed to accomplish in the context of uh, uh, British history. Right. So first of all, let's, let's establish the, the sort of the backdrop for uh, Arthur's life. Um, there's actually a, we, Phil and I did an episode on this. It's uh, it's uh, Roman Britannia. Oh yeah. Um, it's important to remember that there's a good chunk of time there, about 400 years, where the entire um, island of Britain is under uh, Roman rule. It's known as Britannia. The uh, the mainly ethnically Celtic people who lived there were uh, Roman subjects, and it's ruled over by um, the same uh, systems as basically any other province in uh, in the Roman Empire. Right. It's considered a little bit different in that the uh, the locals tend to be a little bit less willing to um, uh, assimilate, I suppose, than than other places. And they, they didn't welcome the bringers of democracy <laughs> they, they didn't welcome the freedom i mean that the romans brought not not compared to say uh uh the spanish for example <laughs> um they they were a little bit more resistant that's for sure and you look at stories you know we we go over all of it in those episodes you know uh the stories like Boudica and things like that where there's there's massive uprisings um it but was, it was julius caesar that that first came to the island, wasn't it? Uh, he's he's the first one to bring a military presence there and to, yeah. to establish a military presence. There were earlier explorers, but yes, he's the one who, uh, quote unquote, conquered uh, Britain <laughs> for for Rome. Uh, it would take a little bit longer to uh, establish um, a, a presence over the entire island, and and they don't actually ever fully uh, uh, finish that. Hence the Hadrian's Wall and and uh, other constructions. Um, those Scottish, they're uh, recalcitrant. That's not the word I was going to use, but sure, let's go with that. Okay. I was going to say they're a hard bunch to keep down. 
I suppose we're more or less saying the same thing. Um, but it's also a little bit different for them because uh, it's across the English Channel from the continent, and the Romans don't really do ships that well. They were kind of forced to adapt to ships eventually, but it's not really their forte. They are they are land troops through and through. So when the Roman Empire starts falling in uh, in the fifth century, one of the first places to go in terms of direct uh, Roman rule, is Britain. Yeah, they just bailed on it, didn't they? More or less. They had a number of uprisings were happening in um, throughout the empire, and uh, Britain was one of the territories that was broken away from sort of the main Roman empire. And basically the Romans went, well, this is too much work. We're going we're gonna to get out of here, and we're not really going to bother taking it back because you know the, the empire was in shambles at that point. They were trying to just hold together whatever they could. And it was difficult to hold, not only because of its geographic location, but also because of something called the um, Great Migration, where you have these waves of Germanic people coming, you know, basically out of Scandinavia originally through uh, um, what's now Poland and Germany. Uh, and, and that's where you're getting the Huns and the Goths. But you also get smaller groups like the Saxons. And the Saxons are coming out of a, a small area um, on the north coast of Germany, uh, near Denmark. And with this sort of vacuum of power uh, created by the exit of the Romans, there's an opportunity for them to move out of the very crowded uh, sort of Danish region, where there are a lot of different very angry groups that are eventually going to become Vikings. So, you know. I encountered a lovely term, uh, Teutonic furor. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's a, that's a yeah. Roman term for the f- frenzy that those peoples would get into when fighting oh that's great generally they would basically pile down from uh, the, the the north of germany into uh the roman empire proper and there was various waves and some of them came as attackers and some of them came as refugees and some of them came as attacker attackers that became settlers and, and all sorts of things but the saxons went well, there's a giant island right over there what let's do that let's do that instead and so when we're talking about various groups of people here, um, we're going to distinguish a little bit between uh, Romans, uh, so people who would consider themselves actual, you know, Roman citizens, uh, whatever their ethnic background is. I, I suppose it's more of a political distinction than an ethnic one. Um, you have the Britons, B-R-I-T-O-N. Um, these are generally people who are, uh, for lack of a better term, indigenous British. They're uh, uh members of, of uh, Celtic uh, groups that have been in Britain for uh, thousands of years. They were the people that were there before the Romans came. Right. Yeah. And then we have the Saxons, who are uh, a Germanic tribe, who are trying to settle on the British Isles. And, you know, for the British, uh, for the Britons, I should say, um, the exit of the Romans is, for a lot of them, a cause for celebration. This is a, this is seen as a an exit by uh, oppressors. Yeah, they never, they were never entirely comfortable with the Romans running the show, right? Correct. Um, but right on its heels come these Saxon invaders. Uh-oh. And it's kind of out of the frying pan into the fire. The problem with the Saxons, though, is that under the Romans, there had really been a, a degradation of any sort of political order for the uh, the native Britons. Most of the traditional uh, sources of power, uh, people who could, con- who could consider themselves monarchs, had all been subjugated by sort of this Roman provincial 
governance system, which is very standardized. It's more, it, it's very, uh, you know, drop it into each uh, territory. It is run by a governor. The governor presides over, et cetera, et cetera. It's the Roman franchise. Yes. Well, exactly. That's a, that's a great way of putting it. Um, problem is there's no more Roman franchise. The governor is gone. The military has gone. It, like I'm sure not everyone left, but was it like almost all of the Romans? There's a good chunk, but the problem with this era in terms of getting really specific about details, and this is really going to be the, the overlying or, or overarching um, issue with our conversation about Arthur, is that one thing that we definitely do know left Britain is um, any sort of academic uh, uh Order, which was generally at this point uh, managed by the church, right? But you don't have the same level of uh, ecclesiastic organization who would do things like keep proper records. In the turmoil that comes with the fall of the Roman Empire, you also have a degradation of record keeping. And so the level to which uh, some Romans would have stayed in Britain or not stayed in Britain is a little bit hazy. And we really have to piece a lot of that stuff together through indirect sources like archaeology, for example, where, you know, you're still finding, um, uh, you know, Roman style belt buckles, uh, you know, over 100 years after their exit, things like that. Looking for their fashion. Yeah, their fashion, their their goods, their coins, especially. Yeah. Yeah, things like that are really interesting. You kind of look at not only when when was the thing made, but also when was it buried to try and figure out how long it was actually in use um, after its manufacture, because obviously a coin, it stays in circulation for a while. There was uh, another one of those lovely news stories about uh, an old British man whose hobby was using a metal detector and going out in farmer's fields. Oh, I love and just, those. And, and I, I think this one, I mean, it's old now. I think it was probably 2007, but I just found out about it where he found like the biggest trove mm-hmm. of all time of yeah. Roman coins and memorabilia. And he's just this adorable old yeah. uh, Yorkshireman. <laughs> There's something about old British men who, who doing their own archaeology that is just lovely. It reminds me of the, the, the guy who um, proved how, how the, the Stonehenge uh, 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 stones were stood up in his backyard on his own. Did you ever see this guy? Yeah, I just remember the pictures. And all of these people are saying, ah, you could never do it with ancient technology, et cetera, et cetera. You know, must be aliens, et cetera. And he just kind of goes, well, no, it's not. You you can do it. Here, I did it on my own. And he's standing up like (laughs) 10 ton stones in his backyard with a shovel and a a branch. Like, where do you get 10 ton stones even? I don't know, like, but the, the sheer stubbornness of it, like he's, yep. he's, he's, he's performing archaeology through well, you can. Fr- from a place of I'm going to do it. anger almost. <laughs> and I love it so much. The, um, let, let's, let's wheel back a little bit to the, uh, the, the Romans though, that, that rebellion that I was talking about, the, the, the usurpers, the, the, there, there were men who basically declared themselves emperor. And for a while there were, uh, a few too many emperors running around the Roman empire. Um, basically all of, of, uh, the Western part of the Roman Empire broke off um, under one of these usurpers. And eventually it was all uh, reconquered, but they didn't bother with Britain during the reconquest. This was done under uh, Constantine III, uh, was was the name of this this usurping uh, emperor. And while the emperor, or while the empire itself wasn't that interested really in taking back Britain, he saw uh, Britain as an opportunity, partially because it's so much very valuable land. Um, you know, Britain is 
decent farming, all things considered, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you don't necessarily have uh, access to, um, you know, more traditional places like Spain or uh, what would become Ukraine. He figured this will feed my troops. But also, uh, he was under the impression that there were still Roman detachments there that he would be able to basically say, well, you're under my command now. Oh. And so he sent his son uh, uh, named Constance to, uh, to Britain to try and basically established some semblance of order over these people. The thing is, it's not quite so easy as showing up and saying, well, I'm governor now. And Constance had a, a very difficult time basically asserting any authority whatsoever uh, onto the situation. That being said, through military prowess, through uh, you know using the Roman legions that came with him, which are still you know the best fighters in the world at this point in time, um, the gap might have closed a little bit, but they're still fearsome warriors. He basically ended up having himself declared uh, uh, king over the Britons rather than uh, governor. He decided that making it a hereditary role rather than appointed one with a limited term was the easiest way to um, assert this power. Effectively, he created a dictatorship, right? He was going to open his own indie Britain. <laughs> yeah, more or less. And initially, he had quite a bit of success, actually. The trouble was the, the, the fractured nature of Britain after um, the, the exit of the governor made it difficult for any one person to be in control. There are a lot of people vying for this particular um, uh, position. And he decided that the best way to sort of ingratiate himself to uh, the Britons was to take on the Saxon invasion and start driving them back. And so uh, he rallied a few you know, smaller leaders to his cause and started um, battling them back with some limited success. Um, Constance was actually there with uh, his two brothers who were quite a bit younger than him. They were, you know, in, in, in Imperial Rome, you would start in the army if you were high born at very young ages, uh, you would be commanding men by the time you were 14, uh, quite easily. And so, um, his, his two brothers who were, who were quite young at the time, Aurelius Ambrosius and, uh, Uther were, uh, were with him on this campaign. He also had a, a, a British or, or Britain advisor. I keep forgetting that distinction. It's really difficult to keep straight in your head. Mm. Um, this advisor was called Vortigern and um, for several years was quite helpful for um, basically advising him on on local customs, helping him figure out who's who in Britain because it is such a, a, a sort of patchwork quilt of, of various uh, you know tribal identities basically. A lot of these people don't consider themselves British. They consider themselves um, you know whatever small kingdom they happen to be a part of. Right. Thing is, uh, Vortigern was dirty. He decided uh, that he wanted the throne for himself, but he wasn't really in a position to take it. Um, so he decided to work within Constance's uh, court, I suppose. He actually made a deal with the Saxons, uh, offering them a significant portion of Britain to come and settle peacefully, that they'd encounter no military resistance. Oh, my. Um, if they would, uh, in turn, support his bid for uh, a united British throne. How long into Constance being on the island uh, was this happening? It really only a couple of years. Yeah, it was a fairly short amount of time. So Vortigern got in and decided that the situation was ripe for him to take advantage of the position? He tried to flip it as quickly as he could gain uh, confidence of enough people to uh, to make it happen. Okay. Vortigern actually has uh, Constance uh, killed, He's oh. poisoned, and uh, Aurelius Ambrosius and Uther decide to uh, flee for the continent. They 
you know, again, they're, they're children, basically. Uh, it's a little bit different being uh, highborn, but being a teenager and being in a situation where somebody is assassinating your brother, maybe not a good scene. Yeah, you can tell even then, yeah, even that young. <laughs> children are amazing. <laughs> Some of them are so bright. But they do end up returning as adults um, a few years later to challenge Vortigern directly, bringing a, a small army with them. At this point, the Saxons are not only supporting Vortigern's uh, uh, claim to the throne, they're actually supporting him militarily. So basically the way that this battle shakes out is um, uh, Vortigern and the Saxons versus uh, Aurelius, who's older, um, and the Britons on the other side, uh, trying to get out these foreign invaders. So this naturally caused the Britons to ally themselves with the, with with the Romans coming in. Correct. And... Um, Aurelius is actually a very competent commander. He he leads a fairly uh, uh, textbook but fairly effective campaign against the Saxons, and everything's going quite well um, until Aurelius falls ill and uh, is. I mean, he's he's fine, but he requires uh, Uther to uh, uh, lead the army in his in his pre- or in his place. He can't go out and command on the field, which was kind of a, a hallmark of his style people like seeing their commanders there with them and it's a big deal for romans yeah absolutely it's always been a big deal for romans even even the most cowardly ones would at least sit at the back of the field on their horse ready to run away um the ones that would actually uh enter the fray uh with their men were uh you know the um the the loyalty that that would gain was uh was legendary Uther defeats Vortigern uh, in battle. There's actually a prolonged uh, siege at Vortigern's uh, castle, during which uh, uh, Uther sees a comet in the shape of a dragon's head. As um, you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's good luck. Um, and uh, gains for himself the cognomen uh, Pendragon, Pen being head, right. so head of the dragon. And this... I mean, comets are always a, a symbol of fire, right? Like it's it's uh, it's a it's a good symbol, but it's also a destructive symbol, and um, it inspires Uther to uh, burn Vortigern alive inside the castle. They set fire to the entire castle and trap everyone within it. Um, it's it's effective, but uh, it's it's very symbolic. Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a vicious um, um, victory, but it, it does the job. He returns to his camp only to find that uh, Aurelius has uh, has been uh, assassinated as well. Poison again, just like his brother. Oh, so Vortigern, before Uther led the charge, Vortigern arranged for mm-hmm. someone to go out and assassinate him. Correct. So, Uther is down two brothers. Their father is, is dead by this point as well, I should uh, oh. mention. So, um, Uther really does not have any ties to rome or any significant ties to rome at this point other than uh heritage really um his father's uh attempt at usurpation of the the um western roman empire uh failed miserably is uh, that how constantine the third died yes and, and, and so really he, he wasn't welcome within the roman empire at all and had also just managed to drive the saxons out of uh or, or drive the saxons back on the british isles and so he basically decides to adopt a um a British identity at this point. Um, he, he's occasionally referred to as the the, the last of the Romans uh, for this reason. Uh, and this feeds into the ongoing, at least I think later in its existence, that the British um, romanticization of the Romans and that the Enlightenment rediscovering of, of the 
culture of mm-hmm. Rome and Greece that came before that would that would be a nice link back to that history through yeah one man yeah well I, and I mean there's even legendary uh, histories not that there's there's necessarily any merit to this but there are uh, legendary histories linking the founding of the the British people or the Britons themselves uh, back to um, uh, fleeing Trojan soldiers, um, oh. which yeah you, you might recognize from the 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 Enid the 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 movie Troy. Well, the movie yeah the movie Troy starring no uh, the the Enid the the uh, poem that was written for uh, Caesar Augustus, linking the Roman people back to the Trojans. Right. Um, again, no merit whatsoever, but this idea of, of sort of uh, uh, creating this historical link back to these these um, legendary warriors was quite popular. And and, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And um, the the, Brit- the the Britons were no different. They they also believed they had this uh, classical heritage that was uh, linked back. And so, for someone of of uh, Roman descent uh, to rule over a, a an ostensibly Trojan descended uh, society seemed like a natural fit. You don't do this kind of work without some helpers, basically some allies, and. Uh, you know, Uther was no different. Um, one of his major uh, allies was uh, the Duke of Cornwall, uh, Corlois. And the downfall of Uther ends up being, um, he, he meets, uh, he, he's invited to a banquet by Corlois, and he meets his uh, his wife there, uh, Igraine, and it's apparently love at first sight. Um, he becomes obsessed with Igraine. And this is a problem, He's she's married to Corlois already. Oh, Uther falls in love with her immediately. Yes, sorry, I was unclear on that. This, yeah, this isn't good. Yeah, that's awkward. And it creates so much tension between the two of them that eventually Uther demands Gorlois basically give up give up his wife so that he can marry her. Um, oh. To which Gorlois says no, and Uther declares war on him. They were so close oh. to actually uniting... Uh, Britain over this cause against the Saxons, but this, you know, it's funny how sometimes this, this small personal stuff can kind of tear people apart in, in, you know, on a, on a global scale or, or at least a, a, a countrywide scale. Yeah. And it's, it's really a, a hallmark of the past and it's yeah. good that we've moved beyond that kind of <laughs> that, base that, idiocy. Yeah. That, that sort of petty thing never happens anymore. <clears throat> um, war is declared and it's actually a fairly long and fairly bitter fight. It's interesting because the the way that allies end up falling in this in this war are, you know, similarly very, you know, the, the allegiances are similarly very personal in nature. It's it's who believes that Uther should be supported because he's king versus who believes Gorlois should be supported because he's right. Because married lady, yeah. did, I, did she have an opinion? Um, Does the historical record actually reflect an opinion? Not really. Oh, and yay. that's no. But you've you've identified a really key uh, problem in a lot of um, historical records is that, especially when it comes to um, marriages for political reasons, yep. whether or not someone is fond of the other party is not always necessarily considered a, an important part of the story at all. Um, you're going to do it because that's what needs to be done. 
you'll sometimes run into people basically saying like, oh, the, the idea of marrying for love is a modern concept. And that's not necessarily true. Um, that's been something that people have been doing for forever. However, the idea of uh, nobility marrying for love, that is uh, something of a novelty. Not always, but often um, putting political uh, uh, motivations behind uh, unions. It's, it's really, really quite common when you look back in history. It's not every time, but the idea of sealing an allegiance with marrying off a third daughter or something like that, uh, it comes comes up time and time again. So, yeah, the idea that something that's uh, you know a record that's fifteen hundred years old is is not necessarily clear on Ygrin's, uh feelings on all this is is unfortunately not surprising. Well, particularly given she's a woman. Yes. Yep. Correct. I yeah. yep, hit the nail on the head. Gorlos sends Ygrin to uh, Tintagel for protection. It's a castle on the on the coast of uh, Cornwall. What is it again? Tintagel. Tintagel. Yeah, and uh, it's supposed to be impenetrable. Um, you know, it's one of those. It's it's on it's on the top of a cliff. There's only one door in, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the war drags on long enough that Uther gets impatient. But Uther has a an advisor, Merlin, and he suggests a plan. He says. Why don't we just disguise, uh, disguise you as Gorlois? You guys look similar enough. Oh. We can get you into the castle. Like, Uther looks similar to Gorlois? Mm-hmm. Well, enough. The idea is that they put them in similar clothes. Uh, they Well, they, they put them in armor. They put them in Gorlois' armor, wearing Gorlois' standards. Um, and they send him to Tintagel at night, where it's difficult to see his face. Right. It works. And he gets into the castle. And... He sleeps with a grain, or depending on the telling of it, rapes a grain. Oh. And the idea is that he's going to basically slip out in the morning unnoticed, and this is all going to be fine, except it's discovered in the morning. Um, a messenger arrives uh, notifying the castle that Gorlois was killed the night before in battle. Oh. Uther is discovered to be uh, the one in Ygrain's bed. Uh. Mm-hmm. Tradition uh, suggests that Arthur was conceived on this night. Oh, okay. That's kind of hard to pin down. Yep. That's how the stories go, though. Uther does marry Ygrain. Um, And Arthur's heritage is not really in question here, whether or not it was actually that night, because uh, Ygrain had been in that castle for over a year. Uh, Corlos had not. So... We're we're quite certain that Arthur is, is Uther's son, not uh, Gorlois's. Okay. Um, but he does do the right thing. I'm making the giant scare quotes by marrying. Sure. Egrain. Yep. Um, and you know, with the main cause of war being taken off the table like that, uh, the war starts gr- uh, wrapping up. But there are a few holdouts. It's going a little bit poorly. Did it ever escalate into a bigger cause? Or was it always just about this feud between these two men? I mean, it, it ended up being who's fit to rule Britain, right? Um, but, you know, it's it's funny how many wars in history are fought over incredibly petty reasons, and wow. they never really need to become that much more uh, 
uh, fleshed out to uh, <laughs> to amount to uh, an incredibly long and bitter. I don't fight. know what you're talking about. World War II, if it's a <laughs> model for anything, has clearly told me that everything devolves into a battle of right and wrong. Yeah, well, no, that's that's every every side is very good or very bad, and that's how you know which one's going to win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uther falls ill, but he insists on continuing to lead the war effort himself. Leads to the moniker the Half Dead King. Yeah, he's not doing so hot. That being said, uh, he begins to turn the tide until, finally, like both of his brothers, an assassin is sent, and and Uther is poisoned, uh, leading to the end of the war, but also to the end of Uther's reign. The aftermath of Uther is a fragmented and threatened Britain. His legitimacy as king was threatened before his death without any real resolution. Um, And there are a number of kings who were fighting against Uther because they believed he was a terrible ruler, specifically because of the issue with Corlois, but, you know, also pointing to sort of a greater character issue here. I mean, he was a a, a passionate man, but also a very hot-headed one uh, and, and, you know, control becomes an issue at that point right mm-hmm. uh it's it's you know do you, do we trust this man to uh rule judiciously and i i'm sure it didn't help that he was a foreigner i don't think it did um he barely had control uh you know after uh working to secure uh, secure the borders i mean his, his support was tenuous at that point and support in the face of a common enemy is very different than uh internal support um that's that's a whole different set of rules so the Britain he leaves behind is fragmented on who to even consider a, a you know, a, a high king, uh, as it were. The um, Saxons were still present as well, threatening it from sort of an outside perspective. And so the question at this point is, who is left to uh, look after Britain? I think this is a really good place to take a break. And when we come back, we will start talking about Arthur himself. Okay. Back on HI101, here with Dan McGinnis. Hey. And we just talked, uh, and we just finished talking about uh, the death of Uther, which I realized after the fact, I'm kind of rushing to try and get to Arthur himself. I should have been a little bit more clear. The war went on a very, very long time after Arthur's conception. Um, oh. That whole cleanup thing, like, I, I made it sound like there were a couple more battles and then Uther was killed. Yeah, about um, six months. Yeah, not quite. About 15 years. Yeah. Britain was in very dire shape. Those wars dragged on a very long time. It was a series of sieges more than it was pitched battles. So it was kind of a, a an ongoing, almost a lukewarm war rather than a full on, uh, you know, constant military uh, actions. And, you know, it is important to remember that warfare is a little bit different at this point. Everyone kind of just goes home for the winter. There's right. like six months out of the year where you just go back to your farm not time to fight crop time yep so it it did go on for quite some time and when uther was killed uh arthur would have been about 15 years old which is kind of an awkward age in terms of uh you know feasibility for a ruler we just finished talking last time about how this is sort of the age where you would end up getting a military command if you were a roman noble anyways um it's the age where uther himself would have gotten his first command thing is you already have a lot of people who are doubting whether Uther was a good enough commander when he was a, uh, a veteran commander. You now have those same people wondering if Arthur himself is uh, 
a viable king and really where his allegiances lie. Was it hereditary at this point? Had Uther successfully established the inheritance of Arthur? See, that's the problem. You can call yourself a king and claim that it's a hereditary title. Like, you have to have people accept that for the second one to really stick. But had any of his followers actually bought into it enough? Yes. Um, Specifically because he, I mean, he'd named uh, Arthur as heir. You know, Uther wasn't the first king here. In fact, he's kind of the third. Remember, both of his brothers had called themselves king before Uther. Right. So they were establishing her um, uh, heredity. Yes, heredity. That's the word. They were establishing heredity through family lines already. They were saying Uther is uh, uh, suitable to be king because his brother was king before him. And so for Uther's son to be uh, next in line wasn't really a problem in sort of definition of role. What it was a problem for was there was still a war going on. Right. And that war, the the constant domestic fighting is all that Arthur had ever known growing up then. Exactly. Um, He had grown up in a world of not really necessarily being certain which of his father's allies would still be allies tomorrow. Um, it's, it's, uh, it was a very fluid situation, a very, um, uh, unstable situation. Arthur's plan to basically dispel these doubts, uh, that were circling around was to basically say, you know what, we're kind of, this isn't helping. This isn't going anywhere. These battles aren't really achieving anything. What has worked for my ancestors in the past and what I think would be good for Britain is while we're bickering about all of this stuff, the Saxons are still on the fringes of Britain, just living fat off of our land. Actually on the island? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Uther hadn't succeeded in driving them out before uh, declaring war against Corloas. Um, He had gotten closer than anyone had in a while, but this distraction that turned into a you know nearly two decade long distraction sort of canceled out those efforts. And so Arthur said, I have no quibble with you people other than you keep fighting me. So tell you what, I'm going to offer armistice and let's focus on what's really a problem here, which is foreign invaders. The 15 year old said that. Well, I'm sure he had. That's very leadery. I mean, number one, keep in mind that a 15-year-old who is the son of a king has a very different level of education than uh, than most 15-year-olds. They I are, guess. They are raised to be leaders from the ground up. They are uh, learning battle plans and uh, things like that from the beginning. That's no guarantee it'll take. No, it's not a guarantee. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying he just has a slightly better chance than most. For sure. Uh, number two, he is going to have so many advisors at this point. That's one thing that when you talk about child kings, uh, sometimes people leave out a little bit. They're generally working with some sort of regent council. Right. Uh, if it's not formalized in like a, a you know a king regent who is uh, ruling in that child's place until he's old enough, it's usually a, a, a council of people who are very respectfully giving very good, very expert advice on matters. Mm-hmm. Number three, I mean, he probably didn't say it that well. You know, he is still 15. He's just trying to figure it's out. Voice probably cracked. It probably cracked. Um, he's just trying to figure out how to not get killed. Mm. And oddly enough, 
uh, shifting from one war to the other seems like it might be the best uh, option here. He pulls together Uther's former allies and brings them to bear against the Saxons. And there's a series of battles. There's 12 of them in all. It's this famous historic 12 battles against the Saxons thing that comes up over and over in, in stories about Arthur and victory after victory against the Saxons driving them back. It culminates in uh, what's known as the Battle of Bath, which uh, finally drives them out of Britain. The last uh, few are either scattered or they just straight up leave. And it's going to be quite some time before the Saxons are back in Britain itself again. Seeing the military success that he's having against uh, the Saxons is, I would I was going to say inspiring to those who are still uh, against Arthur, but that's probably not the right word. What they saw was uh, a young man gaining military experience and succeeding time and again on the battlefield. With Uther gone, backing this kid didn't seem like the worst move necessarily. Hmm. Did did his offer of armistice get taken up? Like, there's no guarantee that the, the people pitching battles against him would stop correct um he was let yes it was is the short version the long version is they figured that if this kid destroyed himself against the saxons then they still had the saxon problem minus the arthur problem so it was sort of like well it's a good strategy fine we'll stop losing our own soldiers we'll let this kid do what he needs to do and probably he's going to get himself killed because that's how it kind of looked at the beginning of this series of battles. How it began to look as the series of battles went on was, hey, I look like the idiot who's not backing the legitimate king of Britain in his righteous battle against foreign invaders. Maybe I should step up and contribute a couple of guys so I don't look like the jerk when this thing is all over and he decides to do something about those of us who didn't help. Hmm. It works out quite well for Arthur. Sounds like it. He comes out of this looking pretty good. There's a bit of a um, conqueror streak to Arthur, though, um, in that once the Saxons are gone, he's not necessarily feeling done. Once you get a taste for it. Um, keep in mind that the, uh, the Romans had never actually managed to conquer the Scots or the Picts, some of those more northern Britons. Arthur does so. Oh, wow. Takes the, takes the fight north beyond the walls and manages to bring them around to his allegiance. With how much fighting? A significant like, amount. Like, did he basically bring them under his boot heel in order to get them? Or was it a matter of um, proving he's a, a significant enough threat that they realized an allegiance would be? As, as with all things, generalizing to this extent is, is causing us issues because the answer to that is really, it depends. Some of them were ready to fight to the bitter end. Okay. Um, others saw the writing on the wall and went, you know what? I mean, is it such a bad thing to have someone who at this point is at least culturally identifying as a Briton, unifying Briton? Um, yeah, the, the issue that the the Scots, the Picts, the Irish had always had against the uh, the Romans was that they were outsiders, as were the Saxons. This isn't necessarily to be seen the same way as as a, a Roman general marching north to uh, bring the Scots to heel. This is a uh, this is one of them. Uh, at least it's a person who, uh, maybe if not by blood, then at least by 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 culture, uh, sees himself as one of them. And to look to that person for 
uh, protection at this point is, is what it ends up being, uh, doesn't seem like the worst way to go. Had the Saxons uh, harried the, the Northerners at all? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Saxon raiders uh, were um, very uh, mobile, let's see. Um, these are, as I, as I mentioned earlier, these are the, these are the ancestors of the Vikings. They have no problems, you know, sailing North and raiding a few monasteries. Yeah. So in that context, Arthur was, uh, clearly someone who could, uh, lead and help defend the North as well as the South from the Saxons. Mm -hmm. That, that, that was, he had that appeal to the Northerners, Northerners as well. Correct. Now, as far as his campaigns go in, in Ireland, that is far less proven. And I, I personally am inclined to uh, disbelieve that he had any success in Ireland. Um, the both political organization and uh, cultural strength in Ireland uh, leads me to believe that uh, I can't see him making any real headway there. There's a tough nut to crack. Always has been, always will be. Yep. Bless him. That being said, the Isle of Britain itself, uh, north to south, under Arthur's reign, he also, uh, he, he may have, he may have actually reached as far as uh, um, Iceland. Again, I I don't buy it. I really don't buy it. Um, it's it's tricky evaluating some of these sources because, as, as we said, this era is so sparse. Anything between about 450 and 550 is so sparse for... Uh, for source material that we have to kind of supplement what little we do have based on other uh, information. And I don't see any reason to believe that. Well, yeah, if, if the written knowledge is, is illumination of all the ages, this age seems like it has less of that sure. somewhat dim I suppose of an you, age. Yeah, I suppose you could call it that. <laughs> low light situation. A very low light, if you will. The entire island being, if not culturally culturally homogenous, then certainly on the same page politically, ushers in an era of really unprecedented peace for the island. And you do start to see some improvement in quality of life, as far as we can tell, based on the fact that everyone's not fighting all the time. This isn't... There's no magic bullet here. This is not this is not uh, an unknowable uh, cause and effect. They're not constantly at war. Things get better. It helps. It really does help. How much infrastructure did the Romans lay down? Oh, oh, lots. And it's all still in very good shape. Romans building roads is just that that is never not going to happen everywhere they go. That's it good. is roads for miles. Yeah, it's it's all. Well, I mean, that's really the reason that london is the capital of of britain it's it, all the roads led to londinium it's yep yeah it's uh, it, it was it was uh, it was a hub and um that influence gave it the the leg up it needed to continue to be the the capital of britain today from the accounts of arthur that we have this period really changed him and potentially for the better he was an incredibly fierce warrior when he was young i, I mean as is evidenced by those battles, there are those who would categorize as what happens now as him becoming soft, I suppose. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily fair. More even tempered, though, certainly. Prosperity has a way of, of um, you know, evening people out a little bit. Uh, when you're not forced to uh, fight not only for survival, but also for the legitimacy of uh, your position and your existence, um, one tends to be a little bit less angry. I'm 
reminded of Octavius. Yeah, that's actually a, that's actually a great point. Um, there, there's definitely a parallel there. Um, yeah, which, which leads one to wonder how much, uh, Arthur wanted to be a warrior and how much he wanted to be a, a leader. Um, because the two things are, are definitely different. The government that was kind of cultivated under uh, Arthur in this era generally tends to be categorized as a as a knighthood. That's kind of an anachronism. Uh, a knight isn't really a thing that's going to happen for a while. That being said, the the equite class of of the Roman Empire is very much applicable here. We're talking about more wealthy aristocracy who has access to um, both uh, land and to arms, basically. Uh, kind of being interpreted later on in the Middle Ages as as being the same as as sort of high medieval knights. Um, Equite is that uh, the the people with horses? Yes. Is that the provenance of equestrian? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, the idea of the the, the ties between a, a a warrior and a horse is going to give you a lot of different words including cavalry, including chivalry, both from uh, the, the French uh, chevalier, from the French cheval uh, for horse. So, you know, etymologically speaking, yeah, basically the same as a knight, but uh, it's, it's, again, a, a noble warrior class, essentially. Um, in a lot of ways, it's based off the, the Roman system, but it really is its own thing at this point in time. He's trying to basically create a power structure for the sake of preserving peace. Did he establish something like a governor for regional control? So there would be sort of regional kings, you know, so there's there's still going to be a king of Wales, king of Cornwall at this point in time, um, but they're all going to be more or less accountable to Arthur as a high king. It's not dissimilar from a governorship, but a lot of the sort of democratic vestiges of the Roman system despite the fact that it was not terribly democratic by the end of the Roman empire, um, they, they've been, we're, we're not even really pretending anymore. We're not rotating out governors every five years or, you know, any of those other, uh, sort of small nods towards democracy that the, the Romans would have practiced. These are Kings. These are hereditary positions. Um, the way you become a knight is almost, uh, exclusively, um, by being of noble birth uh, to begin with. This is not a, an upwardly mobile society necessarily. This does lead me to something that's just circling back around a bit, so feel free to uh, sure. to not address it now. But um, the the Romans hated kings and, and culturally were found kings abhorrent. Mm -hmm. Uther had grown up in a Rome, culturally Roman environment and as had his had his brothers yeah why why was constance down with calling himself a king if he was a roman by birth and you know ostensibly was part of roman society's hatred of kings that's a great question uh there's there's a couple of things i would point out there number one would be that um i'm not sure how roman he considered himself anymore at that point um yes he was a roman citizen but I mean, he was uh, the son of a, a usurper, of, of a literal rebel against Rome. And uh, to be, um, you know, as, as far as people who are uh, obsessed with tradition go, I, I don't think he would be high on that list. So Constantine III, he had no claim to legitimacy? He was just straight up trying to grab power? Correct. 
I mean, and by, so his son knew that. Yeah, of course. Oh wow. Yeah, and and I I mean, by the time you get to the end of the Roman Empire, uh, the the legitimacy or lack thereof of various Roman emperors is incredibly questionable. I mean, you you get to a point. Uh, I think a lot of times when we talk about the Roman Empire, we're talking about very early on in the Roman Empire where there's still um, a lot of systems in place to at least appear like they're giving uh, checks on power. You get a lot of uh, hereditary lines of emperors and things like that. By the end of the Roman Empire, Empire, which is, again, like 400 years after uh, what you and I talked about with uh, Augustus, Basically, the emperor was chosen by the Praetorian Guard, who, when they got sick of an empire of an emperor, would uh, assassinate him and put in whoever they wanted. There isn't a lot of real um, uh, appeal to tradition there. The other thing that I would point out in terms of calling himself king is that he was trying to establish some sort of power over the Britons, who had no problem with monarchs. That was going to be my guess. Um, and if there's anything that the Romans were good at, it was uh, incorporating various cultures into their empire for their own power. They tended to do so through uh, a much more brutal and um, uh, uh, means and through assimilation rather than necessarily incorporating a multicultural system. That being said, languages, uh, religions, all of that stuff generally were fine under the Roman system as long as they also were acting as good Roman citizens. And paying their taxes. Yes, absolutely. The, the, the civic person was the one that they cared about, not the cultural or uh, religious one. Um, and as long as you were a good citizen, that's literally all the Roman Empire cared about, which included paying your taxes. Uh, all the time, every time, sometimes more than you needed to pay lots of taxes. So the third thing I would point out there is that I don't think Romans actually had a problem with kings. I think they had a problem with the word king. The idea that there was anything different about the emperor over uh, a king is really literally a, a matter of semantics. I, I they, there's, there's almost nothing there that isn't king-like, especially by the end of... Uh, the the empire it's uh, an all-powerful hereditary position they just don't call it a king gray area and and perhaps not valid only in augustus plausible deniability mm -hmm. first citizen yep uh, yeah and i mean it would be it would be a century or more before uh, the emperors would actually start calling themselves emperor but mm. um i think everyone more or less knows what's going on there yeah, to, to circle back around, no, I, I don't see any uh, inconsistency whatsoever with uh, Constance calling himself king and everyone that came after him using the same word. Yeah, it, it, it jives quite well with the way that uh, an outnumbered uh, Roman um, would work in a society. Right. If, uh, if you can't adapt the people around you to your culture, you uh, do your best to adapt your culture to theirs so that it still ends up looking Roman anyways. This peaceful period is where you get a lot of the stories that come in later that are completely ahistorical, right? Like, um, this is where you get sort of all the, uh, chivalric, uh, uh, legends where, you know, they're, they're all the same, right? A knight goes out riding and he hears a damsel in a tower and she says, I'm being locked up by a horrible knight. And then they, uh, joust and, you know, it's, everything's fine now. <sighs> No, like that's that's not happening, obviously, but it gives this sort of blank canvas onto which you can project all of this stuff. 
this is also where you're going to get all the Grail, all the Grail quest uh, legends. Right. Um, it's it's all sort of uh, if, if anyone was to ask, well, when does it happen? It happens in here. There are a number of knights that are more or less likely to have actually existed. Um, Bedivere comes up often enough that most likely this is a, a, a real person. They, they believe it's a Welsh name, actually, originally. Uh, Bedwyr, I guess. Um, and then uh, Kay is also uh, a Welsh name that is almost certainly a, a real knight. Lancelot is just like a French fabrication from the 14th century. That's Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's complete. Yeah, it's complete bunk. But... You know, as, as with anything else, this has to end eventually. And after about 12 years of this uh, sort of peaceful period, Arthur hears word that things have deteriorated enough on the continent that things are looking pretty ripe for uh, another sort of attempt at uh, expanding territory. And as much as the guy is leveled out, I mean, that's a pretty good opportunity. Military action takes him to... Norway to Denmark to Brittany, uh, following after the Saxons. Really, this is this is a uh, an opportunity to basically hammer the Saxons back even further. I worked for him at the beginning of his reign. Why not now? Gives him a claim of legitimate war. Well, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Uh, but also an opportunity to expand uh, territory into the former, at this point, Roman Empire, uh, or I suppose current, but currently very crumbling, very quickly crumbling empire. Hmm. And he's going to take as many of his trusted knights as he can with him, but the the military action against the Saxons will eventually lead to uh, direct conflict with the dying Roman Empire uh, in Gaul. It seems he may have defeated a, a leader called Lucius Tiberius uh, in battle at this point in time. This is in the northern area of uh, France? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, Gaul, Gaul would become France. So this is... Was Brittany still separate from France? Or from Gaul, rather? Yes, it's actually uh, a land that's been... Uh, I mean, it wasn't It wasn't Brittany yet. Brittany will be established by Britons invading France, basically. Right. Um, but, uh, uh, so no, it's it's not separate from Gaul yet. But further down into, into Gaul, uh, he, he ran into these Roman troops. And with... Lucius Tiberius out of the way, he was ready to actually march on um, uh, Rome itself. Apparently, oh, wow. uh, for what good it would do him at this point, honestly. There's, uh, you know, they they have barbarians at the gates. Um, there's not much of a Rome to take, but you know, symbolic. Well, I mean, again, there's there's this era of legitimacy, right? In in, in taking the uh, the imperial throne. I mean, where do you go from high king, right? Was the Eastern Emperor now ascendant? kind of i guess is the best answer there i mean this this era of roman history is really not clear to the point where we can't even really gain consensus on a date for the end of the roman empire no um the eastern roman empire has been separate for some time and uh is clearly in much better shape than the western roman empire at this point um you know, we're, we're talking uh uh around uh 450 or so at this point um so the Western Roman Empire hasn't fallen, and the Eastern Roman Empire isn't separate, but they're pretty much there. Okay. Yeah. How many troops did Arthur have with him if he's... I don't have numbers on that, unfortunately. I'd really like to, but no, I, I don't have a, a, okay. a an army count. Uh, it would have been formidable. There's uh, Yeah, if he's going that far, it seems like he'd, he'd, it wouldn't be trivial. Well, he never actually gets as far as Rome. We'll, we'll cut that off right now. Well. He had left his uh, nephew, um, Mordred, in charge in Britain. 
Mordred was uh, um, his, well, half-nephew, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, his uh, his sister, Morgaus, had been uh, the son of uh, Igraine and uh, Corlois. Still had given him a position, still had given him a knighthood. And um, kind of bad blood there. <laughs> well, see, Mordred decided to take this opportunity to try and usurp the throne. Here's the thing about Mordred, and, and this, I think, is really worth uh, considering. There's question because of the circumstances under which Arthur was conceived. There's question about his legitimacy as heir. He was conceived out of wedlock. Right. Mordred, on the other hand, is uh, the legitimate son of Morgaus and King Lot of Orkney. So that means that he has a direct line of legitimacy back to Gorlois, who was a legitimate king in Cornwall. Arthur is a bastard. But a bastard of a king of a bigger area. Correct. And here's the problem. Every single time this comes up ever in history, there is no clear answer. Usually the clear answer is who has the bigger army. Yeah. That's every time this comes up. There will, after the fact, be lots of rules made about why the victor was correct in the first place. But this sort of thing is settled on the battlefield. And this time is going to be no different. Mordred actually, uh, well, he married uh, uh, Arthur's wife, Guinevere. Um, again, we uh, have what in attempt to uh, uh, solidify his um, claim on the throne. But she was already married to Arthur, and he was out of the country. Come divorce. On. Here's the thing: we don't really have good information on how willing a participant Guinevere was in this whole arrangement. Like. Just even, just even procedurally, mm-hmm. how, how you can't double marry. He was usurping the entire country. So I guess that's a minor. I, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you here. <laughs> he was already doing a lot of bad things. Like, the, but what form did he fill out? He, he needs to fill oh, out. Oh, that's not how marriage worked back I, then. Come on. Yeah, I know. Arthur returns to confront Mordred and, um, defeats him at the Battle of Camelon, but is mortally wounded in the process and, and also dies himself. And after his death, you kind of realize just how much he was personally holding together this entire operation. He handed off his, uh, his crown just before his death to his, uh, his cousin, uh, Constantine. But he was never really as effective, Constantine, I mean, uh, a military leader as Arthur was. And and in short order, within a few decades, the Saxons would be back in force. Uh. And that's not really a, a situation that um, Britain ever recovers from. That's uh, the, the Saxons would uh, not only settle, but sort of integrate into uh, the fabric of, of Britain. They'd move in next door. They sure did. Oh. Um, you hate to see it. Oh, the new neighbors. I mean, there's there's a reason that we talk about Anglo-Saxon, right? There's uh, there's half right there. The Angles seem to get less attention for for when they showed up. They sure do, and and it's unfortunate. And the Jutes even less. They don't even get rolled in. Yeah, exactly. They they don't even get it rolled into uh, uh, into that whole uh, uh, naming convention. So. They've got a lovely fabric named after them. That's true. It's kind of scratchy. It's not a lovely fabric. It's pretty pretty crap it's pretty bad um so that's kind of where that story ends and i know it's a little anticlimactic in a way but again i really want to point out the fact that we're we're kind of short on on source material here 
we're doing our best with a, a very very sparse uh, era. I mean, at what point he didn't address what what point did he pull the sword out of the stone? Oh, that never happened. Come on, man. Was the, was she wearing a the lady in the lake wearing a snorkel? <laughs> yeah. How did she stay under so? I mean, there's there's really interesting things there where people have tried to draw from historical sources on where all of these stories come from. I, I was reading about a uh, the Sarmatians apparently had this really um, really close, uh, almost worshipful uh, uh, relationship with their swords. They would plant a sword in the in the ground in their camps and, and supposedly pray to them. And uh, when a warrior was killed in battle, they would throw the sword into into the ocean or into a, a deep body of water. And and uh, there, there's been people who have tried to take those later legends and kind of go, well, maybe they're pulling from this. Maybe, uh, maybe Arthur really did this and he had some Sarmatian connections. Maybe, uh, you know, it, it, there's all this stuff. But like, I, I mean, in terms of what we can actually discern historically, I mean, like everything I've told you here has like multiple sources and we're good and we're pretty confident on it unless I've said otherwise. Right. But um, yeah, the, the it's it's gone through so many different variations over the years that yeah a lot of that stuff well i mean anything involves magic man like that's it didn't happen we can we can just write that right off (gasps) yeah sorry but (laughs) what so i got some bad christmas news for you my dude where (laughs) is harry potter's world at this point with the where the wizards living no they're definitely real thank god all right, so that's uh, that's King Arthur. Sorry to British listeners. Um, any questions, comments? What do you think? Uh, it's a pretty, pretty sad time. Pretty. Yeah. Well, I mean, once you once you strip out all the like all the legends and stuff, like we're, we're talking about another post uh, post Roman uh, British military commander turned leader turned king. That's not an easy life. No. For anyone ever. No, lots of poisonings yeah. and like just stolen spouses, I guess. Yep. It's, yeah, it's kind of play. I like the roads and the aqueducts sure. that the Romans set oh, who up. doesn't like aqueducts? They're like at least lip service to democracy is nice. <laughs> There's a lot of feel good things about Rome compared to this dim age well i mean I, I think that says more about this age than it does rome there's a lot of bad stuff about rome too oh boy yeah <laughs> all right well that's good enough we'll leave it there for today um thank you so much for coming on well thank you for having me okay so by now you should have hopefully noticed the date because it is april fools and there definitely wasn't a historical king arthur guys If you hadn't noticed the date and spent the last hour annoyed with me, I do apologize. Um, But if you hadn't noticed the date and spent the last hour learning lots of new things about the definitely real King Arthur, uh, please forget it all now. Uh, You're the victim of an elaborate hoax we pull once a year here on HI101. Since this topic approaches real history more closely than, say, the episode we did one year about Star Wars, I've decided this year to do a second part, this time talking about the evolution of the Arthurian legend and the context of the times various iterations were written in. That episode will be up on April 15th. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca.
If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.